Hello, everybody, and welcome to our very first podcast episode of DB Talks. This is where I, Jennings Greer, the DBT implementation leader at TJJD, and Dr. Henry Schmidt, our DBT consultant extraordinaire, um, get together and talk about some DBT-related concepts and skills and ways that you can better use DBT skills with our youth and in your own life. So today we're going to be talking about walking the middle path and especially how that relates to mindfulness and how you can walk the middle path within yourself. I felt like given the holidays coming up, everybody could use a nice reminder and maybe as a little bit of mental fortitude for those who are going into um, some more stressful family situations. So... I agree, Jennings. Yes. Uh, hi, this is Henry. Um, thank you for the kind words. I appreciate that. Uh, we can all use a little bit of middle pass skills, I think, as the holidays approach and the end of the year comes. So, perfect choice. Well, thank you. So, I wanted to start by just giving a little bit of background on the middle path. For those of you who have read the adult manual for DBT, um, it's, it's not included. It's a small blurb underneath interpersonal effectiveness skills. It's not its own module. And when um, Drs. Rathis and Miller, who developed DBT for adults, sorry, so sorry, for adolescents, when they were um, creating DBT for adolescents, they realized that walking the middle path skills are extremely important for our teenagers, especially as they pertain to parent-teenager interactions, and also just an observation in my own life is that teenagers often tend to see the world in very black and white ways as they try to understand how the world works and how it makes sense. And sometimes these rules are inflexible and sort of maladaptive. Um, so Drs. Rathis and Miller realized we need to really expand on this. So it is the fifth skills module of DBT for adolescents, and it broadly covers the three areas of dialectics, validation, and behavior change. Mm -hmm. So the thing I would add to this, and we might have talked about this in other, um, in other talks, um, is that these are also the skills that are really important for parents to be able to master when we think about um, good parenting skills. Um, Miller and Rathis realized that when you're working with adolescents, you are always working with parents as well. Um, and that a lot of the families they were working with uh, struggled in certain areas of parenting. And so the specific skills you see in the middle path skills are all really important um, information behaviors, skills uh, that can be uh, helpful for parents to have or important for parents to have in terms of uh, doing good parenting. Yes, absolutely. And I, I really want to stress that while our youth are in TJJD, um, especially within the facilities and the halfway houses, y'all are the primary caregiver. You are the adult who is near them every day or most often. Um, so that really adds a level of importance to these skills because they're not at home being taught these skills by their parents. It's, it's on us. So I wanted to um, start off with dialectics um, and maybe even just stay there for the rest of this talk, depending on where the, discussion leads us. Um, but dialectics, uh, for those who have had, okay. um, dialectics are, it literally means the synthesis of the thesis and antithesis. And that is a very difficult sentence to say, and I don't think it offers a whole lot of explanation if you don't know those words, which I don't off the top of my head. Um, so basically, dialectics are the balance between two things that are opposite and equally true at the same time. So the one we use the most in DBT is I am doing my best, so acceptance, and I can do better, change. They're opposite. They're equally 
truly important. Yes. Um, and the interesting thing about dialectics is often they seem to be like uh, these things shouldn't be true together. Um, and yet what we realize is that there's a lot of life where something is true and something very different is also true. Um, I have my rights and you have your rights. And so that doesn't mean I get to do everything that I want to do. I don't have the right to do everything I want to. Um, particularly when what I want to do infringes on your right to be happy and pursue your own life and, um, and to be free from being interfered with. Um, and so kind of navigating those two things, I want to do what I want to do and I have to allow you to be able to do what you want to do. Um, that's another example of dialectics. So these things that seem to be in tension with each other. Um, and so that's the thesis. Um, I have individual rights. Um, the antithesis is you have individual rights. Um, not that those are anti against each other, but rather they set up a tension. And the synthesis is, well, how do I figure out how to express myself and use my rights and allow you to have your rights? How do I express myself and use my rights without infringing upon your rights? And we've seen, you know, the last 200 and some odd years of American history has been, you know, in a lot of ways, trying to figure out how do we balance those two things against each other. And we kind of move towards one end and then we move towards other ends. Um, some states are more on one end and other states are more on other ends. Um, and so we see this dialectic really playing out as we try to figure out what's, what's the synthesis that works between these two. Um, there's a tension between them and so how do we, how do we manage that? Um, a lot of our staff and parents are in a position of, um, I want a relationship, I want a good, solid, productive relationship with this client and, or my child, and I also have to correct them and sometimes punish their behaviors. And so how do I manage those two things, being the, being the rule enforcer and having a good, healthy, solid relationship that I can use and that my client will use to support our work together. That can feel like, ah, it sets up a tension here. Like, and sometimes we will we'll decide we're just going to do one and not worry about the other. And that's not a successful way to resolve those two things. We're looking for ways that we can do both. Have a good solid relationship and deliver corrective information, enforce the rules when needed. Yes, and I, I also want to add that doesn't necessarily mean meeting exactly in the middle and compromising every time. Um, an example in the DBT for Adolescents manual, which you can find on DB Talks under the Files tab, um, is you know a, a teenager asks if they can um, their curfew has been shortened because they're not doing very well in school. So they ask if they can go back to their original curfew. The parents say, no, you cannot because we instituted the earlier curfew because you weren't doing as well in school and you're not doing better. So the teenager is able, this is a very skilled approach. We would not expect our youth to be able to save right off the bat, but hopefully someday after some, um, some work walking the middle path, the teenager is able to say, I understand the rationale for your decision and I am disappointed in it. So not saying, you know, I hate you, you're ruining my life. The typical teenager response is saying your point of view, your concerns are valid. And my point of view and my concerns are equally valid. Teenager wants to go out and have fun. So that is, we're not going to lessen the teenager's desires just because they're not the ones, quote, in charge. And I think um, for a lot of the time, Adults tend to want to do that because they are in charge, particularly when dealing with more challenging youth, such as our own. Um, so it's it's especially important to try to find that middle ground, walk that middle path um, yeah. with our teenagers. Our youth. Uh, I think one of the things you highlighted there, um, coming back to what you said earlier, is that in DBT, at least, the, the central dialectic, um, that tension that we, uh, that we're looking to find uh, that 
solution for um, is between acceptance and change. And so uh, Jennings just mentioned validation. The parents can validate the client or their child. Yes, I know you want to be able to stay out later. I know you want to be able to hang out with your friends longer. I know that everybody else's parents lets them stay out so they can validate on one hand um, and then changes on the other end until your behavior improves. We're going to keep the care for you where it is. So navigating the way that we see this in our in our work with uh, the youth um, is is often navigating. Sometimes we're working on helping clients to change their behaviors, and sometimes we are accepting the ways the client is um, and acknowledging that that is maybe enough. That they don't have to change anything immediately in this moment. Their emotions make sense. Um, I get why you wouldn't want to have to do this, or I get why you're sad right now, or I get why you're upset with me right now. That makes perfect sense. I'm validating. I would be upset too if I was in this situation, and this is what you need to do. This is what needs to happen. If you want to get to that ability to do that thing, then you need to do this. That's demanding change. So we can move back and forth, and we often we can, we can be on both sides of that dialectic within one sentence. I get it, and you need to do this. Um, and so it's moving back and forth between acceptance and change, not finding some mushy gray area in the middle, but we resolve that dialectic by movement. Standing on left foot, standing on the right foot, standing on the left foot, standing on the right foot. Uh, that's the way that we walk, um, and that's the way that we get from one place to another, and that's one of the ways that we resolve dialectics is by incorporating both one in one moment, the other side and the other moment. Yes. And I, I really wanted to go back um, to something that you you've mentioned or hinted at it, the and versus but. Um, uh -huh. This is a super important, it, it sounds like a very small change. They're each just one syllable words. However, when you begin replacing but with and, number one, you're, you will have um, typically better, a better response from whoever you're, you're talking to. And number two, when you do it enough, it does start to change your thinking because something that we don't really realize is whenever you say but, you're almost always negating or lessening whatever is in the first half of the sentence. You know, I, you're a good kid, but you keep getting in trouble in the classroom. Well, then that's, you've negated the, you're a good kid part. Um, yeah. so now, now whoever you're talking to is left feeling invalidated. Whereas, and validates that it honors your truth and it honors my truth or it honors, you know, this side and the other side. So yes, Henry, you're exactly right. And I love the way that you worded that. It's movement. You're walking the middle path. You're not just standing there. Mm. Yep. And this is super important for teenagers. Like I was saying, there, there's black and white thinking, especially among people with severe motion dysregulation, which is something many of our youth experience um, with borderline personality disorder, which is what DBT was originally created to treat. Um, it's called splitting. So something is all good to all bad. And, um, also called black and white thinking is a cognitive distortion. There are many different words that we can use to, to put a label on it. However, it's all the same concept of being unable to integrate this side with that side. I could have worded that, I think, <laughs> better. No, I think. You're exactly right. So that's one of the that's one of the examples that we see in a lot of our clients of non-dialectical thinking, uh, black and white thinking. It has to be. It's all this. It's all that. It's never this. It's always there's some buzzwords. Um, those of you who've learned about uh, cognitive distortions and challenging cognitive distortions have probably seen some version of black and white or all or nothing thinking um, listed on that list of typical ways in which we cognitively distort. Um, 
and it's a perfect example of non-dialectical thinking. So one of the goals of ABT, um, as Marsha says in her original manual, it's just one sentence in the whole manual, I have to look for it, but she does highlight that um, it's possible that one of the, the ways in which her treatment works is by assisting her clients to become more dialectical, both in their thinking and in their behavior. So when I am afraid of something, let's say I'm afraid of dogs, and uh, a friend of mine brings over their little tiny chihuahua, um, and I just have this fear response of like, oh my God, what are you doing? Don't bring that dog in here. I'm afraid of that dog. Don't bring that dog in here. And everybody is looking at me like, what are you talking about? That little dog is so, so tiny. So when I'm afraid of that dog, and I still allow myself to move forward and maybe even try to pet it, um, that's a good example of me being dialectical in my actions. My fear is telling me to do one thing, and because I recognize that, that my fear is not accurate, I'm not likely to get eaten alive by this little chihuahua or even bit seriously. Um, once my friend has assured me that this dog is very calm, very safe, has never bit anybody, um, I've never heard of a calm chihuahua. What's that? I've never heard of a calm chihuahua. Well, I know calm, <laughs> but calm in the way of not violent, right? Not aggressive. Good point. That's a better yes. way to put it. Yeah. Still hyper, but not aggressive. Yes. Um, and sometimes chihuahuas can be calm if they're sitting in somebody's lap. You know, sure. they, they it can take a mountain to get them out of the lap. Like, come on, chihuahua. So, at least that's my experience with chihuahuas. Anyway. I can act dialectically, I can th I can think dialectically, and I can also incorporate dialectics into my actions, where I recognize that there's not anything really to be afraid of, and I encourage myself, I urge myself, I do what I need to do to get myself to move toward the thing that I'm irrationally afraid of. A lot of times parents have to do this, and sometimes staff as well, when we get really angry at somebody, if we're having a lot of judgments, and we're having a lot of beliefs that this person should they should be punished for what they just did or what they just said. And we decide to not act on that anger. We think about reasons the client said that they, they said, um, reasons they might not be 100% responsible for saying what they said, um, the fact that they didn't have skills to do anything else, and we are more, um, we're more grateful. We're more willing to uh, to not come down harshly on somebody, even though we're really, really angry or really, really hurt. Um, that's another way of kind of acting dialectically. We're having an emotion that says to do X. We look at the bigger picture. We realize that that won't be helpful or functional. And so instead, we get ourselves to do Y, the opposite, to act, um, to act generously rather than vindictively or punitively. Yes, and I um, I think that's really important to keep in mind for our staff, especially this time of year. This is a stressful time. We know that a lot of y'all are experiencing burnout, which is terrible. I have experienced burnout, burnout, and I I know it's it's very difficult to take care of these kids when when you feel like you're sort of at the end of your rope, being burnt out. And so that's um, that's why I'm really glad that Henry highlighted that you know, our immediate impulse may not be the best way to respond in a situation. And so that's um, that's where the, the mindfulness aspect of walking the middle path, especially walking the middle path within yourself. Um, we, were, we were just talking in our behavior chain analysis about the belief that, you know, if if someone disrespects me, I I must correct it. Um, a common belief, especially within our youth, is if someone disrespects me, I need to physically handle it with aggressive behavior, and um, that's that does not tend to be true for functional job holding adults such as ourselves. However, there is oftentimes, especially in Texas, that I've observed, if someone if a kid respects me, their elder, then they need to be corrected or punished. Um, you know, talking back is an example I hear a lot. I don't want to talk back to me or be respectful just in general. So a lot of the time our reaction can be immediately to go to 
perhaps anger or or an, a strong emotion, and then the urge is oftentimes to make is to act on that emotion, um, particularly if it is anger, than to exhibit some aggressive or hostile behavior or even just hostile thoughts and hostile self-talk. So recognizing and then exactly what Henry said, doing the opposite action in cognitive behavior therapy. We call it behavioral activation. Um, it's opposite action is one kind of it. It's basically just tricking the quote smart part of your brain um, because the emotions are in are stored in an older part of your brain and that's harder to change, but you can change the front part. By, so if you act in a way that, for example, with the Chihuahua, if you act in a way that tells your, you know, the smartest part of your brain that you're not afraid, then the smart part of your brain will start second guessing itself and saying, oh, well, maybe I'm not afraid. Maybe there's nothing to be afraid of, so I'll stop sending so many messages of fear and danger and panic, for example. That's true. That's, that's the ways in which um, exposure therapy is effective. Um, and you mentioned uh, behavioral activation, which is uh, uh, which is one of the effective approaches to treating depression. Um, depression says stay at home, close the curtains, stay in bed, don't call anybody, don't answer the phone if it call, if somebody calls, cancel your appointments. That's what depression is telling you to do. Um, and behavioral activation is to act opposite to that. And so. Um, in DBT, there is the, the skill of acting opposite to emotion, and, and the goal of that skill is to actually change your emotional experience. So when you're really angry at somebody and you act compassionately, it's hard to be angry and compassionate at the same time. Um, and so those compassionate actions can help you change your experience of anger. You're less angry after you've engage in an act of compassion towards somebody who you were previously angry at. Um, so opposite to emotion action, very, very effective tool. Um, again, we teach it in the DBT toolbox. Uh, we'll talk about that in emotion regulation. Um, but here we're really talking about dialectics, how to recognize them, what they are, how to recognize them, and kind of how to play with them, how to move to that point of synthesis. Um, now, in full dialectical theory, once we've moved to synthesis and found a synthesis, that then becomes a new thesis, and then its opposite is going to show up at some point or another, and then we resolve that. So it's not like you can get the synthesis on everything at the same time, and then life is beautiful forever. Um, things are constantly changing. That's another aspect of dialectics, the only constant is change. Things are constantly changing. And so we're always having to sort of find our balance again, find our balance again, find our balance again, now in this moment, now in this moment. As we do something, the other person reacts or responds, moves, this, moves the interaction in a different direction. Now we have to find a new synthesis, a new balance point for those So change is constant. Um, other aspects of the dialectical theory, the dialectical mindset, is that nobody has the full picture. So I see my side of things. You see it from your side. There's truth in both of those. Neither one of them is entirely true. And so dialectical thinking, ways that we can increase our dialectical thinking is by including more and more perspectives in the way that we're looking at a situation. Uh, that's one of the reasons that diverse work groups are more effective than non-diverse work groups, because we incorporate more points of view, more history, more ways of seeing the world, uh, more ways of thinking about how to solve problems. All of those things are increased when we have a really diverse group of people who are sitting down looking at a situation and trying to figure out a resolution to it. If everybody thinks the same way, we get into the room, we identify the situation, somebody says X, everybody goes, yep, that's it, and we walk out of the room. There's been no conversation, no discussion, no exploration, no expansion 
of the way that we're seeing something. And so we're operating out of a limited perspective, and we're often going to come up with a solution that's not nearly as robust or effective as one that we might have come up with if we had a variety of points of view. They all contributed to the way they see the problem and ways we could potentially solve the problem. So these are all aspects of the dialectical worldview. And I, I wanted to add, uh, I had it beautifully worded in my brain and I was waiting for you to finish. So give me one second. Yes. Um, no, lost it again. But I did want to say, while well, I'm trying to think of that, that did remind me of, there's a concept in group therapy. Um, I think it's called big mind. And it's that, you know, when, when the group is really in the flow, and I mean that in, in a you know, in psychological term flow of, I don't know, in, in the zone, I don't know really how to describe it very well. Um, but it's called Big Mind, and it's when the group's mind together is much smarter than the sum of any of its parts. So you, all together, you know, it's not like, oh, the therapist is really smart or this one participant is really smart. It's everybody's brain is kind of synced, and so you're able to get so much more out. Um, and I also wanted to say, going back to something you said long before, that's also not my very brilliant thought that is now lost. Um, but I was having a discussion with a family member over Thanksgiving about this because this family member oftentimes thinks in a very black and white, absolute way. And so I reminded her that there is no absolute truth. Um, nothing is absolutely anything. And she said, well, there is one reality. And I said, there is, there absolutely is one reality. However, there are an infinite number of ways to perceive reality. We all perceive it differently. So reminding, I frequently have to remind myself, especially talking to our teenagers who their logic and reason may not seem rational to us. So it can get frustrating. However, reminding yourself that there's a reason that they came by this belief. It, it didn't just happen. This, this belief is founded in a history of behavioral patterns that have kept them safe and been reinforced. So this is how they are understanding the world. And how, how can we bring them into the middle? We have to help them. Um, and the best way that you can help them is by is by doing it. Um, the more dialectical you are, I remembered it now. Thank you, Henry. You <laughs> just letting me ramble. I did remember it. Um, when we are able to think dialectically, we reduce our cognitive dissonance, which is a very uncomfortable state of being. It's an uncomfortable psychological state of being when something does not line up with our attitudes, our beliefs, or our cognitions. Um, I use, I should get a better example, but I use the example of um, if I think smokers are all disgusting. I think it's it's a horrible habit. They're unhealthy. They stink. I want nothing to do with them. And my uncle smokes. And I love my uncle. So now I'm caught in that dialectical tension. I'm having this cognitive dissonance because one part of my brain is saying all smokers are bad and the other or another part of my brain saying, well, my uncle's a smoker and I love him. So, so how can I sort of reconcile these two beliefs and we can walk the middle path and say there, there really are no absolutes and it's humans especially are so different that it's very difficult to put all of them into one group um, or make generalizations about and a whole group of people. That's true. You know, you mentioned another aspect of dialectics um, because, uh, you know, again, so dialectics comes as a, as a philosophy, comes out of the world of philosophy, um, and it is kind of a worldview. It's a way that, it's a way that you see the world. And for me, once you see the world this way, it's hard to go back and not see it anymore. Um, it's just the way the world operates. Um, and it's one worldview. There's lots of philosophies. Um, there's lots of beliefs about the way the world works. Um, but another aspect of the dialectical worldview is that um, the sum is greater than the whole of its parts. Um, you, can take a, a part, you can take a car apart and put 
all the bits and pieces, you know, spread them all out in your garage. Um, everything down to the last nut and bolt and washer and, um, and all of that. Um, and all the pieces together, um, when you put them together, they create this thing that actually goes places, it consumes fossil fuels, and it, it, it exhausts. Um, and so it's more than just a collection of metal and rubber and plastic and glass. Um, it's actually something that you can do things with. That you can get to work for you. It will accomplish every task for it. So when you put it together and it's working, it is greater than just a collection of nuts and bolts. You can't understand anything just by understanding all of the pieces. You have to understand the ways in which the pieces work together to really understand the whole. Um, and the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So um, lots of different little pieces to this dialectical philosophy, this dialectical worldview. Yes, and I, I also wanted to touch on something that I'm almost certain I am about to word poorly, so I'm going to be leaning on you to, to fix the wording, but... Um, also, another belief in DBT is that everything is interconnected. Um, in, yes. in this dialectical worldview, everything's interconnected. So truly, you're exactly right. You cannot look at anything in the context of a vacuum because everything is connected. When, when we talk about DBT skills and how this is technically an emotion regulation skill, but we're talking about it in um, Walking Mill Path, for example. All of the DBT skills are related. All of, you know, everything is influenced by everything else around it. And that is not the most eloquent way I could have phrased it. I think it's perfect. That's right. <laughs> so, um, so part of understanding holes and parts is recognizing that what we do and where we where we do it happens in a context. Um, and so you can't separate a behavior out from its context. That's one of the reasons that we rely on chain analysis to help us understand a behavior because the chain, the interview and possible process of doing a chain is looking at the context in which it occurred. Where did this happen? Who was around? What was going on? Uh, what were you doing beforehand? What were you planning to do afterwards? All of those things. Those are all directly related to the behavior. Bites just don't show up out of no place. Um, sending a nice card doesn't show up out of no place. Um, giving somebody your seat on the bus doesn't show up out of no place. It happens. There's a history to that action, and then there's a future to that action, and things that follow that. And so in order to understand anything, we have to understand it in its location, both historically, in time, and in place. Um, otherwise, you're getting an incomplete understanding of it. So, so much to this dialectical worldview to really unpack. Um, and as you see, we keep coming up with more aspects of it. We certainly haven't exhausted it yet. But these are all important things to be thinking about, certainly when we're working with clients. And the important thing here is that we are, we're helping our clients to see what a dialectical worldview can look like, what it can sound like, how it can be used as a tool to get us out of jams to get us out of problem situations and to contribute to solutions. Um, and so we we do this over and over and over again with our clients. When I hear a client using even judgments, um, uh, I just heard you do that. You did that. Can you, can you say that again but not be black and white about it? Can you be more dialectical? Might be a, a way that I can... I can encourage my client to think differently. Can you just describe what you saw without putting in values of good, bad, terrible, uh, I love it, I hate it. Um, just describe what you saw as a way of moving us towards more dialectical. We're sticking closer to the thing that we're describing uh, without adding our own perspective to it. Um, so we can encourage people in their dialectical thinking through the ways that we respond 
to the behaviors and the thoughts that they share with us. Yes, and I also really want to stress, given the time of year that I selected to do this, um, it's not just with our our youth in TJJD. You can encourage and demonstrate dialectical thinking with anyone, and it's especially helpful if you are in, for example, a more tense family situation, um, which you may find yourself at at some point in the next few months, where, you know, someone in your family or somebody you're around is thinking, you know, in very absolute terms, in, you know, black, white, all or nothing kinds of thinking. And even if you don't say anything, which sometimes it's, it's best not to say anything. And I can't be the judge of that. Only you will know um, in the context, even just keeping in mind this person is like, I am observing what sounds like some black and white thinking or, you know, keeping your observations in your head neutral and also remembering something that I keep in mind a lot is she can keep saying, she can keep talking. I'm not going to say anything. My viewpoint is no more and no less important than hers. So, you know, my feelings are my, my beliefs, etc., are no more and no less important than the other person's. That is, um, like Henry was saying, that is a dialectical tension. It seems like we're, we're on opposite sides here yet. Um, all, all things being equal, us all being human beings, no one person or one viewpoint is more important than another. Um, that's especially a difficult concept for our teenagers because the world revolves around them individually. Um, so that, that can be a struggle. And, and it is so important for our teenagers to learn because it's going to be a very harsh reckoning when they realize the world does not in fact revolve around them, which um, typically they're able to be sort of gently ushered into that realization by their parents through the typical trials and tribulations of being an adolescent. However, our youth are not getting that experience. So it's, it's really up to us to help them see um, that more in a more dialectical worldview. Yeah, that was tough one for me, Jennings. It was very tough for me as well. I think that's why I love DBT now so much, because I needed it the most in my in my adolescence. Absolutely. I'm with you there. I agree. Well, do you wanna uh, do you wanna talk a little bit about the specific dialectical dilemmas that are in the book? Um, you know, we we could, however, I I wanted to keep these I'm not gonna say short, but you know, somewhat um more timely and I think we could that could be better used for another time when we just do a deep dive into the dialectical dilemmas. I'll say I think in my opinion, which is no more and no less important than anyone else's, I think <laughs> the the most um maybe not important, but the most relevant of these dialectical tensions for our staff specifically is you know the original the original one that walking the middle path is based off of that Henry has hinted at it is the there are three types of parenting styles there's the authoritarian which is the I am the grown up I am in charge you do what I say you are obedient etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, I typically use the example of my grandfather and actually both of my grandparents um, my grandfather was a lieutenant and uh, we called. Um, my grandparents, the lieutenant and the general, because Mamie was even stricter than my grandfather. And um, and so it was very, these are the rules. These are the expectations. If you break the rules, there are clear consequences sort of situation. Then you have the other side, which is called permissive parenting. And that's a lot of these parents want to be friends with their kids. Um, also, a lot of these parents are really tired. And they, they just don't know what to do. Like, I, I tried being strict. I tried being on top of them about their homework, and they just never do it. So I just gave up sort of thing. So no clear boundaries, really. And then authoritative is walking that middle path. It is, I am grown up. I have final say. And 
I'm going to hear you out. Um, Henry, you, you referred to it a couple of weeks ago as, as fairness. And I really like that because that's very important for teenagers. Well, it's not fair. You need to take in the mitigating circumstances. And so authoritative parenting, which is then glue into the entire module of walking the middle path, because you can see how important it is for any kind of adult teenager interactions is how do we walk that middle path? Um, and, you know, I think a lot of my dad who being raised in a more authoritarian household, and he likes to use the word authoritarian, but he's certainly authoritative. And when we were younger, we had to um, identify our behavioral transgression. And then we had to choose what we felt was an appropriate and corresponding consequence to our actions. So, you know, for example, purely hypothetical, if somebody, someone were to talk back to my father about how unfair it is that that someone could not go to a party after curfew, even though everyone else was going to be there, and then that someone started using somewhat disrespectful language and speaking to my father as an equal, then the natural consequence would stand to reason um, they would probably lose their car for the night and not go to the party. Just pulled that one right out of my head, purely hypothetical, but... <laughs> Hard to even imagine that. Couldn't, couldn't be me, certainly, yeah. but that's a, that's a great example of walking the middle path. And it's also... It is deeply humbling when you have to say, I, I guess I should lose the car. And and yep. saying, so you, you're you sort of forcing them to take accountability for their actions in a way that's not making them feel bad. It is punishing because it, in the definition, the behavioral definition of punishment, which is reducing the likelihood it will happen again, um, However, it's not, it's not punishment, and I put that, you can't see me, but I'm putting that in loose quotations, where a lot of the time, especially in Texas and, and in um, more southern states, where, you know, if you're bad, then you need to be punished, rather than looking at a behavior that we want to decrease the frequency of. Right. So, one of the ways I think about that is the difference between punishing a behavior and punishing a person. Yes. Um, one is behavioral and one is good practice. One's based on a lot of science. Um, the other one is moral, punishing the person. Um, more moral. Um, and that's discovered based on good science that it contradicts the sense that somehow we're all connected, that the behavior makes sense in the context, if we can understand this person's history, um, their history of being reinforced and punished for different things, um, the tools, the other tools they have developed to solve their problems, uh, this behavior would make sense. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense to cast that person out because of what they've done, even though that could be a, a very common emotional experience. Um, I just want that person to go away. I want them to suffer. Um, those are things that, that we've learned often or that we sort of naturally experience. Um, not based on any science, not terribly dialectical, and, um, and um, not terribly effective either. Um, so there's a big difference between wanting a behavior to go away. Uh, it's uh, loving the sinner, hating the sin. Um, and that's a good dialectical resolution right there. How do I continue to hold this person thoughtfully, mindfully, with care, um, with compassion, with grace, um, and still not approve of that behavior that they just did? That is a that's a that's a, a difficult dialectical dance. And when we can do it well, it's a great example of resolving a dialectic. Yes, I absolutely agree. And as as a diehard behaviorist, um, for those who may not have already known, you know, punishment, behavioral punishment, which is what I think people often think that they are doing when they are, quote, quote, punishing, um, 
a youth is, it's exactly what Henry said, it decreases the frequency that that behavior will happen again. So when you're punishing a youth, what exactly do you not want to see happen again? Because right now you're punishing their existence, their living. That's the sort of the thing they're doing that's being punished. So that also one behaviorally, scientifically speaking, not going to be effective in behavior change. And two, that's not going to lead to resilience. It's for, for the youth. It's not going to lead to an, any kind of improved self-concept and it's not going to lead to an improved or even maintained relationship. It's going to weaken your relationship and your rapport with that youth, which is, as we know from TBRI, the only way that you can help heal relational trauma is through relationships. So just tying it back in, because again, everything is connected. Um, when we are not dialectical and we don't try to meet our youth where they are and help them to walk through the middle ground, when we just try to punish them, then their behavior won't change, but their image of themselves and their image of you certainly will. Yes. And so our ability to retain our future effectiveness is something that we want to keep an eye to. Um, And another way of thinking about it in my mind is that, um, am I, am I trying to, am I trying to help this client learn to, that this behavior isn't going to get a payoff? Um, so that's punishing the behavior. Um, or is my goal to increase their misery or suffering? Now, when I do something and it increases my misery, it is possible that I will choose to do something different next time. In fact, it's likely that's one of the negative outcomes that can influence future behavior. Um, but if I perceive that somebody else is deliberately increasing my misery um, and they seem to be wanting me to be miserable, um, then that absolutely is going to damage my relationship and it's going to have a lot of the other negative outcomes. Um, we see this as well with a lot of our youth who, who want to be respected. They want to be able to influence things happening in their world. Um, and they believe that the best effective way to do that is by increasing other people's fear of them. So respect equals fear. Fear equals respect. If, if I can get people to be afraid of me, then they're going to do what I tell them to do. Um, maybe true. Maybe true in some circumstances, but it's going to increase resentment, dislike. Uh, it's certainly not going to breed loyalty uh, or closeness or friendship, uh, any of the other positive traits that we might think of. And so in a way, it may help you to influence things, but it's got so many downsides to it. And plus, it might just get you arrested if you're doing things that are really increasing fear in other people. You're often threatening them or hurting them or hurting things that they care about or people they love. And those are all great ways to get yourself arrested. Um, And so they may be effective for a short term, but they have a high cost. And there are probably other equally effective and uh, more effective from the perspective of not damaging your relationship or your future possibilities with those people there might be other ways to influence people to get respect um, and to um, influence the decisions they make other than just getting them to be afraid of you. Yes. Thank you. I, I can say nothing, but I absolutely agree. Um, and I say this a lot um, because it's, it's very true and it's going to, Thinking and acting dialectically is going to help your life at work and at home or, you know, outside of work. And the more that you practice these skills to think dialectically, the easier it will be and the more of a habit it will become. Like Henry said, once you, once you start seeing the world in such a way, it becomes very difficult to go back and you don't want to because it's much more stressful seeing the world in in absolutes rather than understanding that the dialectical tensions between everything. If you, if you really look closely, I'm sure you could find a dialectical tension between just about anything. Yeah. Well, you know, you bring up a really good point there. 
um, Jennings, which is that when our vulnerabilities are high, if we haven't got enough sleep, if we're sick and cranky, if we're not taking care of our cold, um, if we're not eating well, uh, if we're worried about uh, some crisis or some potential uh, bad thing that's unfolding, if we're worried about other people that we care about. Um, if we just stubbed our toe. If we just stubbed our toe. Um, we are. It's harder to have all of the energy that it requires to allow yourself to, to stay in a dialectical place. It's a lot easier to get black and white when you've just stubbed your toe. You know, that blankety-blank chair, who put that chair over there? They should have seen that I was going to stub my toe on it. Oh, what a stupid idea. Who did that? Now I want to Now I want to make somebody else suffer. Um, and I've automatically just sort of lost my dialectical perspective. I've gone into black and white, good, bad. Um, have to respond with a huge response um, to this thing because uh, I'm in pain. And pain definitely requires a lot of energy to manage it without doing something impulsive in response to it. Um, so, uh, so when our vulnerabilities are high, our short-term vulnerabilities in particular, uh, we're sick, we're not eating right, we're not sleeping right, we're worried about a lot of things, uh, uh, it can be a real challenge to stay in that dialectical space. So the more we practice it when we're not stressed, the easier it is when we are stressed. And even if we practice it all the time, it can be difficult to stay there. So it's one of those things that we say practice because you're never going to master it just by virtue of being a human being, just like mindfulness. We're never going to perfect the art of mindfulness. However, the more that we practice, the easier it gets, exactly like Henry said. So um, I, I know that Henry and I could keep talking for hours, uh, and we have before, but yes, we, we we've been going for um, 52 minutes. So I think that's a pretty good spot to start wrapping it up. Um, and if you have any questions on this, please feel free to reach out to me, Jennings Greer. Um, and also, if you want Henry's email address, I can give it to you um, if you ask nicely. So <laughs> thank you so much, Henry, for joining us. Well, joining me, I guess we're we're just alone, but joining everyone who will be listening imminently. Um, My pleasure. And My I, pleasure. It's been fun. Yes, and I, I really look forward to this new podcast platform. I'm I'm very hopeful that it will be able to reach a lot more people than we were with the scheduled Teams call. So thank you, everybody. So Especially so thank too. you yes. to Henry. We're yes, go ahead, and, uh, and I'm just going to say, wishing everybody a dialectical holiday season. Yes. Good luck. <laughs> yes. Good luck indeed. Um, and if you have questions about that as well, please feel free to reach out to me. I have a whole lot of experience with dialectical holiday seasons. Good luck to you, Jennings. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody.